Welcome to MTSU On The Record. I'm Jenna Logue, and we're coming to you from the campus of Middle Tennessee State University in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. In an era of political polarization on so many levels, an MTSU professor and an academic colleague are putting one particular type of polarization under the microscope, Losing Power, African Americans and Racial Polarization in Tennessee Politics is a new book by Dr. Ray Block, Jr. of Penn State, and our guest, Dr. Sekou Franklin, an Associate Professor of Political Science at MTSU. The book examines the years between 2000 and 2012 and the issues that resulted in deep racial divisions in a state that once was considered relatively moderate compared to its Deep South neighbors. Losing Power, after this. Here are some of the headlines making news at mtsunews.com, the university's news and information website. MTSU's Board of Trustees, which met March 31st by teleconference due to COVID-19 virus concerns, approved two new undergraduate degree programs for the coming academic year. Trustees elevated MTSU's existing concentration in horse science within its Bachelor of Science in Animal Science program to a freestanding Bachelor of Science degree with a major in horse science. That effective May of 2020. Members also approved a new Bachelor of Arts in Music degree, which will be in addition to MTSU's existing Bachelor of Music offering, also effective in May 2020. And MTSU recently attracted a worldwide audience with a conference that expected to attract about 400 people. The Tennessee Center for the Study and Treatment of Dyslexia at MTSU transformed its Fox Reading Center from a hybrid of in-person and cyberspace communication to an all-digital endeavor because of the COVID-19 virus outbreak. Some 5,500 people on four continents logged in for all or part of the March 21st video conferencing center, which had reached its on-campus registration capacity. Attendees exchanged information and perspectives on how to help students enhance their reading comprehension. For MTSU News at any time, go to mtsunews.com. Seku, welcome. Thank you for being on the program. Oh, thanks for having me. I greatly appreciate it. Okay. There are three factors mentioned in the book. Partisan realignment, second-order devolution, meaning prioritizing some areas over others, and political acquiescence. These are what you posit have contributed to racial polarization in Tennessee. Yes. Can you explain each one of those for us, please? Well, the first one in terms of political realignment is that um, what, what that for the most part describes is the re- realignment of, of the party system from, on a surface, a Democratic Party to a Republican Party, but in reality, really a, a state that was dictated, as, as Dan Baltz described, the Washington Post reporter described once, as a, as a state that was dictated by a bipartisan consensus of some sorts. So from a st- state that had a party system in which Republicans and Democrats shared power to a state in which we have a Republican Party that controls most of the levers of power in this in this particular state. So we've seen a shift, a major shift in party allegiances. And along with that shift, you have a realignment that's been informed by, by race, by racial animus in some cases, and definitively by racial polarization. And so in, in this period of time that we're describing, uh, another factor that shaped realignment was that for a lot of different reasons, particularly in terms of geography, I think, in terms of the geographical distribution of, of residents in the state, the dis- geographic distribution of, of white voters in the state, 
you've seen a surplus of, of more conservative voters who were made available to be mobilized in this decade that we're talking about, which also, which also contributed to a, a party realignment. And the party realignment, the party, the Republican Party that has emerged, particularly in the last decade, again, is a Republican Party that in many respects is distinguished from the, the Republican Party that had to follow the dictates of a kind of a bipartisan consensus from decades ago. This Republican Party that has emerged is much more ideological, much more partisan, and um, and much more influenced um, by a kind of explicit partisanship. So that has affected polarization. Second order devolution um, is a second factor that, for the most part, describes on the surface, it describes a transfer of power. The, the other part of it is it, the more important part of it is that's often undervalued or under or ignored with in discussions of what's called second order devolution is is that it allows state officials to use social classifications and group reputations that is race that is reputations about uh, localities those kinds of instruments can be used to determine the allocation of goods and services and to determine the direction of public policy now your viewer, your viewers have heard of devolution devolution is a term that was coined by the Reagan administration which basically describes the transfer of power from the national government to the to the to the, to the lo state and local governments that devolution ethos is rooted in a in a dual federalism kind of tradition that dates back to the early founding of the country second order devolution basically is a term that means that oftentimes state actors state level officials will either transfer power to to local officials or oftentimes they can determine the direction and allocation of goods and services as I described before that's often based upon reputations of localities social classifications who benefits and along with that that can structure certain policies so as an example or as some examples may be debates around taxes the state income tax, for example, in the early twenty, in the early part of the decade of the twenty first century, debates around criminal justice policies, debates about ten care, health care, those kinds of things like that, are debates that are not just uh, faith neutral debates that are absent of of viewpoints and reputations regarding race and region, but the debates in which lawmakers, I think, you know, we got we have information anecdotally, but I think there's also evidence empirically in which lawmakers oftentimes will be informed about how those policies are impacting constituents depending upon the various parts or regions that they come from. And the, the last factor um, that I think that's influenced polarization is really, really I think there have been points in time in that first decade of the 21st century in which African Americans and social movement leaders have had a chance to make more prophetic demands or social justice demands around certain policies. But I think during that period of time in the 21st century, you saw, in many respects, an acquiescence on the part of some base Democratic voters, um, for example, in some cases, even African-American leaders, not always, but in some cases. But the underlying ingredient behind that was this constant fear that if African-Americans spoke out too much, in some cases, that it could undermine um, electoral solidarity it could, or, or, or undermine party solidarity. And it could it could expose or make vulnerable those Democrats, for example, who relied upon swing voters and moderate voters. So we saw cases or situations in which political comity or political acquiescence, I think, was the strategy chosen by some African-American political elites. And oftentimes it's used also to reduce or minimize racial animus. And what we're arguing is that on the first end that, you know, we could probably understand the attempt by some African-American political elites to acquiesce politically or to essentially seek not to press too hard for demands. But despite all of that, it has not reduced racial animus. It has not reduced 
the various kinds of ways that anti-civil rights forces, for example, um, will try to polarize the public, particularly around around race. It doesn't work. It, did, it didn't work in the state of Tennessee, I don't think. Um, I think we can point to examples of the election of Harold Ford Jr., for example, in which he ran essentially a deracialized campaign. I think we can point to the uh, the contentious elections involving Nathan Vaughn in eastern Tennessee. And I think you can look at even some of the legislative debates, for example, even around taxes. I mean, the, Afri- the Black Caucus was willing to concede on the state income tax, uh, even on the issue of a, of, of a flat tax, of a flat income tax at the state level. And those kinds of attempts to build political comedy, build relations, I think, have, haven't worked to the extent to which... Um, Many, many, many people in Tennessee believe they should have worked. We will get to Harold Ford and the state income tax debate in just a moment. By zeroing in on one state during one specific period of time, you sort of help put the lie to the assumption that the South is somehow politically monolithic. Have researchers tended to study Southern politics, especially racial politics, as though it were monolithic? The newer research out there... I think, tries to not fall into a monolithic trap. I would say that some of the older research about the South, particularly research that relies upon aggregate, aggregate data, and I would say that the intelligentsia, the, um, the opinion makers in the country, oftentimes will view the South as a kind of a monolithic region. But I think the, 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 some of the newer, newer research, the new researchers, are seeing the South in more complicated terms, not just in terms of a state-by-state differences, but also in terms of within a state or even across state looking at race and ethnicity, where you have a growing immigrant population, you have people moving to the South who are maybe from the North due to migrationary patterns. So I think they're seeing variations within the South in more complicated ways. But I think the old way of viewing the South, and I think the more the more uh, mo- the modern spectacle of the South that you would find on cable news, for example, still sees the South in 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 somewhat monolithic ways, more so monolith- monolithic ways than they than, than than as as heterogeneous as as diverse. We'll take a break right here. We'll return in just a moment. This is MTSU on the record. The Concrete Industry Management Program at MTSU fills the need for trained personnel who know concrete technology and techniques. Our alumni go into the marketplace grounded in basic math and science and able to promote products or services related to the industry. Our participation in the academic common market ensures talented students in other states a chance to enroll on an in-state tuition basis. This is Dr. Heather Brown, director of the program. To find out more information on this or other university programs, visit mtsunews.com. MTSU's Jewish and Holocaust Studies minor offers undergraduate students a chance to study the culture and religion of the Jewish people and the Holocaust in an interdisciplinary program. Studies include history and culture, theology and philosophy, and the arts and social sciences. Courses tackle vital topics central to local and global awareness, including multiculturalism and the meanings of diversity, religious tolerance, and genocide. For the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. The book is called Losing Power, African Americans and Racial Polarization in Tennessee Politics by Dr. Ray Block, Jr. of Penn State and Dr. Sekou Franklin of MTSU. Sekou is our guest. 
There are certain issues that occur during this time frame that you put in focus in the book. Let's start with the legislative fight over the state income tax. Everyone who lived in Tennessee during that time, I'm sure, remembers the horn-honking protesters day in and day out outside the the state capitol. Talk about that in terms of, of the racial politics aspect. During this period of time, Democrats had control of Tennessee, you know, by, by a slim majority in the House and the Senate. But but the party identification, quote unquote, doesn't necessarily define the politics. The politics of Tennessee, you know, since, you know, Democrats have had control for wherever, has always been that there's a, a, a center coalition, a coalition that relies upon centrist or that is conservative Democrats, moderate Democrats, and also some Republicans who, for the most part, are oftentimes were oftentimes the most influential force in terms of our key swing votes. So you just can't look at party ID. So Democrats had control, but you had a Republican governor at the time, Governor Sunquist, who for a variety of different reasons had pushed for income tax back since the late 1990s. The most contentious battles were were in the early 2000, 2001, 2002. And the Black Caucus in particular, the Tennessee Black Caucus and their members very supportive of a state income tax because they want they saw it as of course offering you know resources to their cities resources to their constituents as a way to pay for uh, anti-poverty programs as a way to pay for health care at the time you know tank care had just come online in the mid-1990s so of course that also was played into the factor in terms of the state budget the black caucus for me had two wings, and and one was a wing of, of folks, of people like Roscoe Dixon, Senator Roscoe Dixon, were very much, you know, in favor of what we might call a progressive tax of some sorts, some sort or another. One that more so aligns with a traditional kind of liberal Democrats. And then you had someone like a Senator John Ford, a longtime supporter of a state income tax at the time, both of them out of Memphis, who on the surface, I think, did believe in a in a progressive income tax, but was willing to compromise on on proposing a flat income tax, which is which at the national level Democrats hate. Yeah, but it con- had been promoted by Steve Forbes, who was a Republican yeah, candidate yeah, for president. Yeah. But but context matters. Because context, I think, you know, the Black Caucus you find them saying we can be ambidextrous. We can be we can be ambidextrous in our proposals. We can we just want an income tax that can help alleviate some of the pain and suffering that their constituents are facing in terms of resources. And we want a reduction, the other part of it, of a sales tax, which was seen as regressive and to their constituents. Because the sales tax being as high as it is, it's on food, it's on medicine, it's on the things that everybody buys every day. And for the poor people of color, people who are marginalized, that really cuts into their overall income. The flat tax, whereas everybody would be paying the yeah. same percentage of income tax, it would still hurt the poor more because they have few, less income to deal with. 5% of 20000 hurts more than 5% of 40000 Yeah, you're exactly right. I think from the standpoint of, of uh, John Ford, he was willing to say, look, you know, we're supportive of income tax. We want to make some concessions um, if we have to make some of those concessions. And um, I don't think that was his first choice. Um, and, um, you know, I think there were some some reports that suggest that a person living in Memphis at the time who's paying a sales tax and other kinds of tax fees and so forth, um, that they're paying some of the highest taxes per capita of any city, for example, in the nation. So that weighed heavily upon particularly those Memphis uh, lawmakers. The other thing about the tax provisions and tax policies is that it, it can be racialized in terms of perceptions of who's going to benefit from a progressive tax or some type of in- income tax plan. And the subtle text of that is often, you know, black folks are going to benefit 
mm-hmm. more than anyone. It's a, it's a provision. It's a redistributive provision that's going to benefit black folks. Mm-hmm. And and even though, you know, you don't really find black lawmakers explicitly, you know, using race to promote the reason why we need income. That's not in their language. In fact, there's a great, great, great quote by John Ford who says, you know, People think that black folks don't pay, pay their fair share. Mm-hmm. And in reality, he says, we do pay our fair share. Um, I actually have the quote right here. He said, it is a myth to think black people, poor people do not want to participate as taxpayers. I've not heard one constituent say he didn't want to pay his fair share, but nobody wants to pay more than their fair share. And what he's mm-hmm. saying is that there are certain myths about a state income tax proposal that informs racial predispositions. And also class predispositions, basically the idea that mm-hmm. people wanted the state income tax to help poor people and black people. And he's saying mm-hmm. there's a more complicated story here as to about the reason why we need a state income tax. It was uh, the racism was implicit. It was coded. It was coded. It, it was the, behind it all was the stereotype that people couldn't say out loud, which was yeah. black people are lazy. They want yeah. everything on a silver platter, yeah. blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And that also speaks to this issue of debates about, you know, political acquiescence or political comedy. That is attempts by African-American leaders to minimize race as a mobilizing force or minimize demands that are based upon race as a mobilizing force out of fear that it could disrupt a kind of a Democratic Party coalition or or that it can mobilize white racial resentment. We find time and time again in which regardless of whether or not African-Americans are advancing issues through a face-neutral lens, that is, we want a stat- state income tax that can benefit all Tennesseans, or regardless of whether or not they're advancing issues through a, a deracialized framework, there's always the vulnerability, particularly by opponents of, of these issues, like state income tax, of racializing issue in multiple through multiple entry points, mm-hmm. through explicit entry points, through implicit entry points, through a racial priming, through a variety of things. So it's very difficult on a range of issues for African-Americans and African-American political elites to really run away from race, even as, even as they try to down, downplay it. Time for another break. We'll be right back. This is MTSU on the record. Women in Science and Engineering, or WISE, helps college women prepare for and become involved in science-related careers. WISE nurtures women's interest in these fascinating and critical fields and provides mentoring and networking opportunities. The group's main goal is to assure women of their importance in all scientific and technical fields and to promote equal opportunity and treatment of women in science. I'm Dr. Judith Iriarte Gross, WISE Advisor. For all the latest MTSU information, go to mtsunews.com. The Middle East-centered MTSU seeks to promote greater understanding of the politics, history, and culture of this vitally important region of the world. Its mission includes the promotion of outreach programs and faculty research. The center sponsors lectures by Middle East experts and scholarly exchanges. We're especially pleased to offer a new interdisciplinary minor in Middle East studies with courses in Arabic and Hebrew. This is Dr. Alan Hibbard, Center Director. For all the latest MTSU information, go to mtsunews.com. We're talking with Dr. Sekou Franklin, Associate Professor of Political Science. He has co-written the book, Losing Power, African-Americans and Racial Polarization in Tennessee Politics. In the introduction, you refer to the U.S. Senate race between Congressman Harold Ford Jr. and Republican Bob Corker. I remember that race, and in particular, a Republican National Committee television ad with a young blonde woman saying, Harold, call me, which caused a national 
furor was Ford's defeat one of the causes of the racial polarization in Tennessee, or was it a symptom of something that was already existing? Well, there, it was a symptom of a trend that was taking place in, in retrospect. And uh, you can you can look at the Ford defeat in multiple ways. You could say that Ford overperformed and did about as good as he can do, as but about as good as any Democrat can do, particularly a black Democrat, even though Ford throughout the election kind of ran, I call it a situational deracialized campaign in majority. Majority white, majority white jurisdictions. He didn't emphasize race, although when he stepped into black communities, black folks saw him as a black candidate. You know, he seemed to be doing his dead level best to achieve a persona of a moderate. Yeah, well, he was a moderate. That wasn't just a strategic issue. Since he got, since he was elected and went to Congress in the 1990s, he governed essentially as a moderate on a whole range of issues. So you could say that Ford overperformed, not just that he overperformed, but his vote total, his, his vote total as a, as a Democrat has, that we now, now, we now know now high size 2020, almost 14, 15 years later that mm-hmm. his vote total as a Democrat overperformed what other Democrats running for president or running for federal offices have achieved in mm-hmm. this state. Race and racial polarization was here before Harold Ford stepped into the race. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the trend line was already moving in that direction. I think if Harold Ford had been elected, it could have shifted the direction of party politics in the state. But I'm not entirely sure that it would have reduced racial polarization because some of that polarization then reemerges with Obama's election in which he found out, at least from the standpoint of, of a white racial resentment emerging mm-hmm. and a Tea Party movement emerging in Tennessee. So Even with a change in the balance of power, the blowback, the racial blowback is still going to be there. Is it's, yes. It's been there and is going to continue to be there. Yes, yes. I think that what, what Harold Ford Jr.'s campaign suggests and shows as it pertains to race and as, as it pertains to the television advertisement that you mentioned, which is officially known as the Playboy Bunny ad. Right, because she, <laughs> yeah. she said yeah. in there that she met yeah. him at the Playboy at Club. The Playboy party. And yeah. she's a white blonde, and especially her portion of the RNC ad is such a blatant appeal to racist Racial tropes yeah. yet that you can't help but I mean it's right in your face it's not to me it's yeah, not even that, coded it wasn't just the ad that was used there were several other kinds of controversial issues there was a controversial mailer sent out to East Tennessee County County, County residents mm-hmm. you know talking about preserve your way of life quote unquote there was a radio commercial asking voters essentially to vote against Harold Ford Jr with African sounding drums sounding in the back. Mm-hmm. So there are these kind of racial priming tools is what we call that were used. But it also shows that Harold Ford ran just about the most deracialized campaign. It's one of the things that political scientists have written about for decades now, since the late 1980s. Oftentimes you can have deracialized campaigns or crossover campaigns, but it's hard sometimes to remove race or racial taboos or racism or polarization from a particular campaign in a highly contested race that has a biracial, that is a a, a population of African-Americans and a considerable population of of whites. So Mm -hmm. it was was a lesson on on the the challenge that one faces in running these kinds of campaigns that you can't really reduce race oftentimes from these particular campaigns. It'd be very difficult for Harold Ford to run in an era like this. In the same way that Phil Bredesen ran for governor as basically the most moderate, conservative, cross-party, coalitional governor. You can, I mean, Bredesen is, is more 
bipartisan than than Bill Lee was or than Hazem was than Lamar Alexander. I mean, but he got fewer votes than did Harold Ford did in 2006, despite running effectively more or less a more a more bipartisan kind of mm-hmm. campaign than most of the candidates running. But I think Bruce Bartlett, a domestic policy advisor for Ronald Reagan, wrote I thought was a very good essay where he in, he he analyzed you know 15 or 20 academic studies. Um, and this is a conservative historically, a Ronald Reagan conservative, and he he was very troubled by the amount of what's called white racial resentment that has emerged among many white Americans and how that essentially has shaped this modern era of politics that gave voice to Donald Trump. Many whites, according to Bartlett's essay, um, feel that they themselves are the ones that are being discriminated against in, in the same way that blacks felt that they were being discriminated against in the 1960s. So they see themselves as being the object of a kind of reverse discrimination. And for Bruce Bartlett, that's very troubling because that means that white racial resentment is embedded and institutionalized more dogmatically in the culture than, than than what he was was used to. I do think that there is an economic grievance and economic angst that Trump tapped into. It doesn't mean that that economic grievance is divorced from racial grievance or nativist grievances. And in fact, uh, what you have are various cross pressures informing each other. You could have real economic mm-hmm. grievances being informed or informing deep-seated racial grievances, mm-hmm. deep-seated grievances about nativism, anti-immigration attitudes. They can all be in the same kind of gumbo mm-hmm. pot. For progressives and Democrats to not recognize that there is a, a part of that gumbo pot that does speak to certain economic grievances, that has been a mistake by Democrats. And I'll give you one example. Some of the free trade agreements that occurred in the early 1990s, which were bipartisan agreements that occurred, NAFTA, GATT, uh, if you go to 1997, the normalization of trade relations with China so that you know the textile industry is being being withdrawn from places like North Carolina, mm-hmm. here in Tennessee, Morristown, Tennessee, lost a some number some factories to, for example, you know, overseas. And I can go, you know, almost county by county and look at factory closures. And I think those are real grievances that have been accelerated by free trade agreements that that ironically were supported by a bipartisan coalition of Congress. Um, and it was opposed by all the civil rights groups, all the labor groups opposed NAFTA in the, in the early 1990s. They opposed the free trade agreements. Mm-hmm. If there are four or five var- variables affecting Trump voter, and one of them is economic grievance pertaining to concerns about free trade and the groups that gave the most prophetic voices, the pro-worker voices to that grievance in the early 90s. No, I, I followed it. We're African-Americans, civil rights groups, and, and labor organizations. Now, as we fast forward, you know, mm-hmm. you know, almost 30 years later, almost, you know, 25, 30 years later, at least that part of the grievance is what, is what Trump has been able to tap to. And I think, to some extent, Bernie Sanders, I believe, we just can't ignore that part. You know, while progressives are opposed to Trump, they can't ignore that part of the, the grievance that one finds among many, many Americans. The book is called Losing Power, African-Americans and Racial Polarization in Tennessee Politics. It is appealing to academicians, but I found it highly readable myself. And I think a lay audience would get a great deal out of it as much as the academic world. Dr. Sekou Franklin, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. We'll be right back. The Middle Tennessee State University Women's Studies Research Series features compelling monthly talks on gender-related topics by faculty and graduate students. The series offers a chance to learn about research in progress and to chat with faculty in an informal setting. All lectures are free and open to the public and are held on the MTSU campus. For all the latest MTSU information, go to mtsunews.com. Tennessee's farm families contribute to our state's economy, nutrition, and culture. 
The Tennessee Century Farms Program at MTSU's Center for Historic Preservation acknowledges farms that have been in the same family at least 100 years. To date, the program has certified more than 1,500 farms. There's no cost to nominate a farm or be part of the program. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. Randy Weiler has the middle moment. MTSU students will receive remote help from tutors and supplemental instructors in many subject areas for the rest of the spring semester and possibly beyond. It's the Office of Student Success helping them adapt because of the coronavirus outbreak. Director of Student Success Cornelia Wills says they will continue to deliver this valuable service to students and provides more details. So tutoring is a part of the resources that we provide for our students. And might I say, very valuable resources. The other is supplemental instruction. And we, at all of the campus, quickly converted from campus face-to-face to a remote form of delivery. We have about 170 tutors and 30 supplemental instruction leaders who are doing a great job in continuing to offer this service to our students. And we do frequent check-ins on tutoring sessions and with SI leaders to ensure that everything is going smoothly. Serving our students, that is our most important goal. That's MTSU on the Record. I'm Jenna Logue. Thanks for listening. MTSU on the Record, a news and information program about Middle Tennessee State University, is produced by the university's Marketing and Communications Office, which is solely responsible for its content. Read more about MTSU at our website, mtsunews.com, Podcasts of this program are available at mtsunews.com and on iTunes.